The following sermon by Stephen Charnock is called A Discourse of the Removal of the Gospel. Remember from whence thou art fallen, and repent, and do the first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of its place, except thou repent. Revelation 2 verse 5 These words are part of the epistle of Christ as king and governor to the church of Ephesus, and they contain a severe threatening after a charge and indictment brought in against that church. The bill is preferred against them by Christ, who is described in verse 1 to be him that holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. He holds the stars in his hand to show his tenderness, in his right hand to show his power, and he walks among the candlesticks to show his care over them and his love to them. Before he brings a charge, he takes notice of what was praiseworthy in that church, and gives them the commendation of their patience under persecution and zeal for his glory, verses 2 and 3. But alas, the case was changed. Their zeal was cold and their love was flattened. Verse 4. She had left her first love. Ephesus was a mart town of Asia, famous for Diana's temple. Acts 19.28 Which brought resort and consequently wealth to her from all parts of Asia and Greece. I have formally noted that the condition of the church in the several states of it is described in these epistles. Croesus discourses of them to this purpose, whence our Dr. Moore might take his rise for that ingenious and rational piece he had written upon these epistles in this sense. The design of this book is to predict what should happen to the church in all ages till the conclusion of time. And what is spoken here to these seven churches seems to be greater than can well suit these places in Asia while they remained Christian. The conversion of the Jews seems to be intimated to be brought to pass in the Philadelphian state, to which we probably are approaching after a smart trouble, Revelation 3.5. I will make those that are of the synagogue of Satan which say they are Jews and are not, but do lie, behold, I will make them to come and worship before thy feet. Those that are of the Jewish synagogue, which he calls the synagogue of Satan, being blinded by the God of this world, to keep up that worship which God has rejected, which are indeed Jews in the flesh and by circumcision, but are not so in the spirit. Or it may be meant of some people that pretend to be of the Jewish race or practicing the Jewish rites that shall in that state of the church give up their names to Christianity. And for Laodicea, it is argued that the epistle cannot be meant of local Laodicea because that is reported to be swallowed up by an earthquake in the time of Nero before the writing of this epistle. Doctrine number one, how unwilling is the nature of man to be guided by the word of Christ? Men will be mixing their own wills and wisdom with the wisdom and will of God. Error cannot else have crept in so soon while the memory of the apostles lasted. The church of Ephesus was the first state of the church next to the primitive, and this gave strong provocations to God to take away the gospel from her. Number two, Christ takes into account both of the good and evil works of a church. One makes them not overlook the other. He will not cocker any for their good or spare them in their evil. 
He sweetens his reproof here with a commendation like oil that makes way for a sharp nail. He reckons their labor, patience, sense of his dishonor, their discovery of seducing spirits, the circumstances of their zeal for his name and constancy and unweariedness in it. He sees our good grain and beholds our chaff. He takes notices of our decreases and of our decays. Number three, grace does not privilege sin. Though he takes notice of their worth, yet he charges them with their crime. Christ takes more notice of the sins of his people than of the sins of others. Other sins are enmities. He expects no other from them. The Christian sins are unkind and more affect him. Christians' professions, mercies, covenants, assistances, privileges require a suitable walk. Judas, his betraying Christ, did not so much trouble him as Peter's denial of him. We do not read that he thought of Judas after he had betrayed him, but he would look back upon Peter whilst he was exposed to the danger of his life and approaching to a contest with death and wrath. Christ will be terrible in the assembly of his saints. He will not endure the dustiness of his golden candlestick. We may see here, number one, the disease, verse four. Thou hast left thy first love. Number two, the issue of it, if it were not cured, the removal of the candlestick. Number three, the cure, which consists in consideration, remember, in their present condition, fallen, of the term of their apostasy, Whence thou art fallen, reflect upon your present condition and your former state and compare them one with another. In contrition, repent. In reformation, and do thy first work. Right after your former copy, this method of cure was to be observed, otherwise Christ would take away the golden candlestick. Do your first work. Reduce yourself to the form of primitive Christianity, away with all mixtures in worship, chillness in discipline, looseness in practice, doctrine. Reformations are reductions of things to their original pattern and first institution. When Christ would reform the abuses in marriage, he does not bring them to the practice of their fathers and a practice of their posterity but measures both that of their own and that of their ancestors by the first rule. In the beginning it was not so, Matthew 19.18. We are usually swayed by customs and morals and precedents and politicals. When custom and prescription alter not the nature of unrighteousness and unreasonableness. True reformations are reductions of things to reason and reduction of things to scripture. I will remove thy candlestick out of its place. I shall not trouble you with the different interpretations of it. There was a candlestick within the tabernacle, Hebrews 9.2, which had seven branches, wherein lamps were continually presented, lighted. The candlestick represented as a type the gospel church, and the lamps the gospel in it, and the oil to supply the lamps the gifts of the Spirit for the preservation and propagation of the gospel. An allusion is made in this place to the candlestick in the ancient tabernacle. 
Some think the candlestick with the seven golden branches represented the seven planets. But with what reason I understand not, since the branches of the candlestick were all equal. But the planets are of a different light and magnitude. The chief intention of the ancient tabernacle was to represent and signify future things. The seven particular churches allude here to the seven branches of that candlestick. Seven particular churches are seven states of the church, all parts of the universal. The chief concern of the candlestick was a light in it, without which, as the tabernacle had been a place of darkness, so is a world without the gospel. By removing the candlestick is, therefore, to be understood, the removing of the gospel, and so an unchurching of them. Candlestick may be here put for the light in it by a metonymy of the subject for the adjunct. We might observe first a nation, people, or church that have been imminent for the owning the ways and truths of God may have great decays in their affections and greatly apostatize. Number two, apostasy in a church is followed with a removal of the gospel. Number three, the removal of the gospel is the saddest judgment that can happen to a nation. We may put the two last together, and so I shall insist on this doctrine. God does often remove the gospel upon provocations as a severest judgment he can inflict upon an unworthy people. Apostasies have been very frequent. Everything under the sun is subject to alteration and corruption. Faith is not a hereditary thing like a standing patrimony. Children do not always tread in the steps of their ancestors, what they receive only by education. They will easily part with upon some carnal interest, some smiling or frowning temptation. Some have observed that the purity of the gospel has scarce lasted in a city or province to the third generation. The gospel and the honor of it may remain longer, but usually some error, some mixtures, have deformed it. Good corn is scarcely sown, but the devil is as ready to sow his tares. I shall premise number one, the gospel shall not be removed out of the world while the world endures. Zion, the universal church, has a promise of stability. The gospel, therefore, in which she has constituted a church shall be perpetually in her. The shutting the gate of the sanctuary after the Lord's entering into it. Ezekiel 44, verse 2, is expounded by some of the everlasting dwelling of the Lord in the gospel church, and never departing from it as he had done from the temple of Jerusalem. The promise of Christ assures it. Matthew twenty-eight twenty, I will be with you always, even unto the end of the world, not with the persons of the apostles who were to expire, but with the doctrine of the apostles, which was to endure. Though the apostles die in their bodies, yet they live in their doctrine. Number two. The gospel has been and still may be removed from particular places. No particular church but may be unchurched, because no particular church has a promise of stability. There is no intel of God's favor to any particular church in the world. The gospel is a candle and the church is a candlestick. Both candle and candlestick are removable things, not an entailed inheritance. Many nations have had their day of grace set and are now benighted. 
Jerusalem had a season in which to know the things that concerned her peace, Luke 19.42. She finds nothing now but sorrow and exile. There is a time when the Spirit strives, and there is a time when the Spirit turns his back and ceases any longer wrestling. Sometimes God does both on church and on nation of people. Sometimes he removes the gospel and continues a nation in being, but this is rare. To continue providential mercies when his most excellent truth is departed. But in such cases he gives them up to strong delusions, who would not render themselves at his summons. He continues the substance while he removes the efficacy by withdrawing his spirit. And then the gospel is like a carcass without a soul. Isaiah 6, 9 and 10. They shall hear and not understand. First, I shall observe this method in handling this doctrine. I shall show the gospel has been removed, a nation has been unchurched. Secondly, it is the greatest judgment and the application. That a nation has been unchurched and the gospel has been removed. The Jews are an imminent instance. They had the gospel in a type while they enjoyed the ceremonies. They had the gospel unveiled while they had the presence of Christ among them. God gave them anciently some evidences of the possibility of it. The law was near being quite removed from them when upon their idolatry the two tables were broken by Moses, which a little before had been received from God. When the ark was put into the temple at Solomon's dedication of it, though it was lodged there without any intention in the people to remove it, yet the stays whereby it was carried were continued in it, 1 Kings 8, 8 and 9, so that it was ready for a removal at any time. To show, say some, that if the ark were abused and the testimony slighted, it should be taken from them. First, consider... They were a people that had the greatest titles. They were called by his name, Jeremiah 2, 2 and 3. They were his peculiar treasure. They were called God's son, his firstborn, his spouse, his portion, inheritance, and his delight. Yet he has flung this treasure out of his coffers, disinherited his firstborn, cast his children out of his house to be fugitives about the world. His spouse is divorced from him, and his inheritance laid waste. No child was more endeared to a father, no wife more to a husband than those people to God. Yet how is that Jerusalem, which was his delight, now a den of thieves? Secondly, consider the privileges they enjoyed. They were a people cherished in his bosom, walled about with miracles, protected by him in person. He marched before them as their general and conducted their motions, Exodus 13.21. He was their lawgiver and penned their statutes in which they were to be governed. With his own hand, he spake to them from heaven, which he did to no other nation. He was their caterer and provided manna for them in their necessity and fed them by miracle. He was their bishop to settle them in a church and their prince and magistrate to form them into a state. Not only their religion, but their civil government was the birth of the wisdom of heaven. He put his oracles as a treasure into their hands, Romans 3, verse 2. The covenant, ark, pot of manna, 
were committed to them. He planted them a noble vine, called them out from all the nations of the earth, whereby they were made the delights of heaven and the admiration of the rest of the world. He made them his garden. They cost him more than all the nations beside, and he seems to have no care of any part of the earth besides them. The world had his alms, and they the inheritance. The rest of the world were his Ishmaels, and they his Isaacs. And, which is observable, his first thought seems to be to have the gospel confined only to them in that covenant which he makes with Christ, which is represented in the manner of a treaty between the Father and the Son. He seems to pitch no further than Israel, in whom he would be glorified. Isaiah 49.3 Till Christ complains of the narrow limits and gains a larger portion for himself. The terms are then enlarged. Verse 6. It is a light thing that thou shouldest be my servants, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved of Israel. I will also give thee for a light to the Gentiles. The promises of the Messiah made to Abraham and Jacob were often with an addition of clearness renewed to them by the prophets. He chose them of all nations, of whom his son, the Savior of the world, should be born, with whom he was first to treat. His personal ministry was designed for them, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Only he was sent. That nation he in person solicited. Over them he wept, and over them he prayed. Matthew fifteen twenty four. Those that were to carry the gospel into other parts of the world were selected out of that nation. And though they used him so ill, yet he was indulgent to them. Sent his spirit upon the apostles first at Jerusalem seemed to have a little care of the Gentiles. How long after was it that Peter scrupled to treat with them? But since they have proved false to God and forgot the rock of their strength, he exposed them to the fury of a Roman army, tore up the foundations of their government, demolished their temple, caused the land he had infest them in to spew them out, scattered them over the face of the world as a spectacle of his vengeance and a standing monument what the case will be of any nation that walks unworthily of the gospel. Number three, consider the multitude of strange providences they had. He delivered them to the amazement of all around about them. They were a happy people, and being a people saved by the Lord, Deuteronomy thirty-three twenty-nine. They saw more of his wonderful providences than all the world ever since has done. He put himself out of the ordinary course of providence in their favor. He spread their tables in the wilderness and filled their cup. No good thing they could have a mind to, but they had for asking. The sun must stand still in heaven to lighten him to the gaining of victory if Joshua desire it. They had upon all occasions immediate direction from the ark. What favor did they find from Cyrus after they had been captivated? A hundred thousand were set at liberty by Ptolemy, after they had been enslaved by his father, when they proved false to God and played the harlot upon every high hill and under every green tree. How was their temple and city destroyed, and after some revolution of time repaired, and that by their enemies, as some observe, contrary to all the rules of policy, since the re-edifying their temple and the repairing the walls of their city, might be encouragements to them to rebel, they being a people that had so often forced their necks out of the conqueror's yoke. 
And often when the temple wanted repairs, God stirred up the hearts of their enemies to send supplies out of the Roman provinces to beautify it. That as God had at first enriched them by the jewels of the Egyptians, he would maintain their wealth by the assistance of the other Gentiles. And when Pompey entered into the temple, where there was a treasure in the vessels and instruments of gold, amounting to about nine millions of money, a strong temptation to a generous person. Yet God so ordered it that he could see nothing there but a cloud. They never were conquered, which you know was often, but God raised them up some patrons. Yet notwithstanding all these providences in which God so miraculously owned them, and all the dangers from whence he so powerfully delivered them, they are now pulled up by the root, persecuted by man, abandoned by God, the generation of his wrath, Jeremiah 7.29, of a tender father, he has become their enraged enemy, and flings vengeance down upon those heads which before he crowned with mercy. No spiritual dew falls upon these mountains of Gilboa, those that were as pleasant to God as the grapes in the wilderness to a thirsty traveler, Hosea 9.10 are of as little regard as a bramble. Their names are a detestation in nature and a hissing to the Gentiles. God sometimes embraced the Jews without taking the Gentiles and now has received the Gentiles with rejecting the Jews. Number two. The seven churches of Asia to whom these epistles are written are another instance. How do their places know them no more as once they were? Not only their religion, but their civil politeness is exchanged for barbarism. They have lost their ancient beauty for a Turkish deformity. Muhammad's horse has succeeded in the place of the gospel dove. The blasphemies of the Alcoran sound where the name of Christ has been called upon. The triumphant banners of an impostor advance where the standard of the gospel had been erected. Christ had a great company of votaries in those places when the ancient Britons were under the empire of Satan, but now he seems to have sowed those places with salt and made them barren. No courageous Athanasius or silver-tongued Chrysostom or lofty Nazensian could be found in those places. He has translated the gospel into other parts and multiplied children in those places which before were barren. We might instance also in the Church of Rome a church whose faith was spoken of throughout the whole world. And how is the truth and purity of religion discarded? True faith dwindled into implicit. The righteousness of Christ changed for impotent and feeble merit. Pilgrimage, oblation, self-chastisements advanced instead of the virtues of the cross. Whole countries made drunk with the wine of her fornication. The glory of the gospel gone, a mere echo only remaining, the end of a voice and no reality. They are given up to strong delusions to believe a lie. Secondly, the thing. That the removal of the gospel in unchurch in a nation is the greatest judgment. Can there be a greater judgment than to have the word of God removed? To want a prophet to instruct and warn, when the law shall perish from the priest and counsel from the ancient. This God threatens is the greatest. Ezekiel 8.26 And the church complains of it is the sorest. Psalm 74.9 We see not our signs, and there is no more any prophet among us. 
It was the greatest token of God's anger when his glory went up from the cherubims. Ezekiel 9.2 How much more terrible is the shaking of the dust of the feet of God against a people than the shaking off the dust of the feet of an apostle? What greater evidence can there be of a father's indignation against a disobedient son than not only to disinherit him, but disdain to speak to him or send to him any notice of his mind and will? The misery of the old world was summed up in this, My spirit shall not always strive with man, Genesis 6, 3. And then are the floodgates of heaven open. The shutting up of the book of mercy is the opening the book of justice, the unstopping the vials of wrath. This, this is the very dregs of vengeance. Number 1. The gospel is the choicest mercy, and therefore the removal of it the sharpest misery. The gospel is so much the best of blessings, as God is the best of beings. This is the sun that enlightens the mind. This is the rain that waters the heart. Without this, we should sink into an heathen, brutish, or devilish superstition. By this, the quickening spirit renews the soul and begins a gracious and spiritual life in order to a glorious and eternal one. It is by this our souls are refined and our lusts consumed. Without it, we are without help and without hope. Without it, we have no prospect of a world to come, nor any sight of the paths that lead to happiness. This is the foundation of the peace and joy of our spirits here. This is the basis of our hopes of happiness hereafter. This is a pearl of great price. This is the glory and honor of a church, people, or person. This only instructs us to save our souls. Your trades may gain and preserve an estate. Your bread may nourish your bodies. This only can fatten and prop your souls. Had we the law only, which yet is the law of God, we should still find it weak through the flesh. It cannot now save us, though the observance of it might have made our father Adam happy. It is the gospel only that is strong to save through the Spirit. The law could bless an innocent man, but the gospel only restores a guilty one. When a candlestick, the gospel therefore is removed, the light is removed, which is able to direct us, the pearl is removed, which is able to enrich us. In the want of this is introduced a spiritual darkness, which ends in an eternal darkness. As the gospel is compared to heaven, and so called the kingdom of heaven, and a people in the enjoyment of it are said to be lifted up to heaven, Matthew 10.23. So in the want of it, they are said to be cast down into hell, so that what resemblance there is between heaven and the means of grace, that there is between the want of them and hell. Both are a separation from God by divorce between God and a people. Number two, it is made worse than those judgments that are accounted the severest. Plagues, wars, famine are lighter marks of divine anger than this. God, upon several provocations of the Jews, sent enemies to waste their habitations and ravage their country, plagues to diminish their inhabitants. Yet they were still his people. But when he takes the word and ordinances from them, they are lo ami, not my people. Hosea 1, 9. God may take notice of a people under the smartest afflictions, but when he takes away his word, he knows a people no longer. A father may scourge a child and yet love him, but when he takes away his treasure, his food from his child, he can no longer be said to love him. 
He breaks the bands of all relation and natural affection. This judgment is compared to and yet made worse than a famine of bread. What more terrible than famine that has forced parents against the ties of natural affection to devour their children and children to feed upon the lean flesh of their parents? What more terrible than famine that has rendered carrion, dung, rats, serpents, the refuse of nature, a delicious food in that extreme necessity? What more dreadful than this that brutifies the nature of man and necessitates them to horrid and abominable actions? Yet this is made a light thing in comparison of the other. Amos 8.11 Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will send a famine in the land, not a famine of bread, not a thirst for water, but of hearing the word of the Lord. And what bitter gall doth God here dip his pen? I will not send so light a judgment. I have worse scourge for them. When God sent the Jews into captivity, he sent prophets to attend them while they were under the Chaldean power. The remains of them in the land had Jeremiah and Baruch. The captives in Babylon had Daniel, Ezekiel, Esdras. After the captivity, they had Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. But in this judgment, threatened against Israel, none at all. They were to be without a prince or a priest, Hosea 3.4, for the word signifies both without a sacrifice, without ephod and teraphim. As a soul surpasses a body in excellency, so a soul famine exceeds a bodily famine. The lack of spiritual is more dreadful than the lack of corporal food. This makes us weak, and that makes us wicked. This pines away the strength of the body, that drives out the health of the soul. This may be a means to make us seek the Lord, but that leaves us groping in the dark. We may live in our souls by the influence of the word when we have not bread to convey strength to our bodies. But how must the soul languish when it is deprived of spiritual food to nourish her? Isaiah 30 verse 20 How doleful would it be to have the ground parched by the sun, the sky emptied of clouds or the bottles of heaven stopped close without venting a drop of refreshing rain. But how much more deplorable is this judgment than the withholding the clouds from dropping upon our earth or the sun from shining upon our fruits. Number three, when the gospel departs, all other blessings depart with it. When the great charter is taken away, all the privileges depending upon it are snatched away together with it. When God departs, judgments succeed. When the glory of God was gone up from the first cherub to the threshold of the house, Ezekiel 9.3, the angels are commanded to execute the destructive sentence against that city, verses 4 and 5. The honor and ornament of a nation departs. When a man departs from his house, the hangings are taken down, the furniture removed, and the walls left bare. Length of days are the blessings of wisdom's right hand. Riches and honor the treasures of her left hand, Proverbs 3.16. She departs not from any to leave her hands and the blessings of her hands behind her. Number two, the strength of a nation departs. The ordinances of God are the towers of Zion. The temple was not only a place of worship, but a bulwark, too. The ark was often carried with the Israelites into their camp because there their strength lay. And when David was chased away by his son Absalom, 
He takes the ark of the tabernacle as his greatest strength against the defection of his son and subjects. When the gospel goes, God continues no longer the protector of a people. When a man has packed up his wares and removed them, he cares not much what becomes of the house he has left, which while he is in it he will defend to the utmost. When the ark was taken by the Philistines, what a rout is there among the Israelites, thirty thousand of them slain. Eli, the high priest, breaks his neck. His sons fall in the battle, and his strength and glory were departed from Israel. 1 Samuel 4 The flourishing condition of the seven churches withered when the candlestick was removed. When the things of Jerusalem's peace were hid from their eyes, the destruction of their city followed, so that one stone was not left upon another, because they knew not the time of their visitation. Luke 19:42 and 44 When the Roman eagles clapped their wings in judgment upon them, then did the armies of the enemies bring desolation upon the points of their swords. Then was the temple filled with the blood of the worshippers, which had been formally consecrated in a way of mercy by the blood of sacrifices. Then were carcasses heaped one upon another, and the survivors led in chains to a miserable captivity or a disgraceful death. What a wasted wilderness is that land now, deprived of that ancient fruitfulness in which it afforded maintenance to such multitudes, which in David's time were about 130,000 fighting men, yet thought by some not much bigger than Yorkshire. When the gospel of peace removes, eternal peace goes with it. Temporal peace flies after it, and whatsoever is safe, profitable, prosperous, takes wings and attends it. Number four, God has no other intention in the removing of the gospel and unchurching of a nation, but the utter ruin and destruction of that nation. Other judgments may be medicinal, this is killing. Other judgments may lance and let out the corrupt matter, this opens a passage for life, soul, and happiness. Other judgments are but scourges, this is a deadly wound. In other judgments, God may continue a father. In this, he is no other than an enemy and a destroyer. Other judgments may be for conversion. This takes away the means of conversion. The torments of hell are not inflicted for the conversion of the damned, nor the setting of the gospel sun for the conversion of a nation. A deluge of other judgments may lift the ark higher, but this overthrows it. Other judgments may have their period. This is hardly reversed. Not one of the seven churches restored to their former beauty to this day. This is an absolute shutting the gates of heaven against a people and entailing upon them death and curses. Number five. This judgment is accompanied with spiritual judgments, which are the sorest. The pounding of the jewel is far worse and of greater loss than the breaking the casket. The judgment of being given up to our heart's lusts, to sensuality, pride, hardness of heart, delusions to believe a lie, are the sorest judgments. They're like poison in the soul that will never leave till it is eaten out the vitals. There shall then be no divorce between men and their idols. Hosea 4.11 Your daughters shall commit whoredom and your spouses shall commit adultery, i.e. spiritual adultery and idolatry. When the check of idolatry is gone, the fury of that lust will rage. Application 
Does God often remove the gospel upon provocations as the severest judgment he can inflict upon an unworthy people? Then number one, be afraid of this judgment. How do we know but that God has limited the preaching of the gospel and the standing of the candlestick in this and that place only for a time? And when that is expired, it may be carried to another place. We see it has been so with others. If he has not spared the natural branches, nor the church next to primitive, nay, those churches where the gospel was planted by the apostles, what reason have we to think he should spare us, who have long ago discarded primitive discipline, and are in a fair way to throw away primitive doctrine after it? Is England better than Jerusalem and Ephesus? Are the privileges we enjoy a bar to the removal of it? And are privileges greater than those churches which were planted by the apostles had? Yet the hand of God has shaken them off. Did not the Jews oppose their descent from Abraham, to whom the promises were made, and the glory of their temple, as an invincible shield against all the threatenings of destruction by the prophets, as though God had been shut up in their temple and so enamored on the beauty of that structure that he could not have the heart to leave them? But are they not rejected and the Gentiles received in their room? Is not that which was once the glory of their nation and the wonder of the world, many an age since fallen to the ground and moldered to dust? What though the gospel be not yet gone, that sin may lie at the door which is meritorious of its departure. God's patience does still last, but will it always last? The gospel may shine bright one day and be eclipsed the next hour. The Jews might say with confidence, Our temple yet stands, till they heard the report of the Roman eagles marching towards them. The sun shone very bright that day Sodom was burned. The preaching of the gospel in a plentiful manner is a sign of judgment when there is unfruitfulness under it. Was not the gospel preached to Jerusalem by the best preachers of it that ever were? The Son of God and the apostles after him not many years before the destruction of that city? God has quickened his judgments when the gospel is contemned. The black, red, and pale horses, plague, war, and famine, followed just upon the white horse to cut off such as would not be conquered by him that sat on him. Revelation 6.2 The sun shines brightest many times when it is nearest to setting. I must confess I am of the opinion that the gospel will never be perfectly and totally taken away from these western parts of the world. It has borne up its head for many ages within the scent of Rome, and those of Piedmont, notwithstanding all endeavors to extinguish it. The slayings of the witnesses, or the two prophets, which perhaps is not far off, is not a corporal but a political death. Their dead bodies would not then be allowed to lie in the street three and a half years, which we must understand by the three days and a half of Revelation 11.9. And the resurrection of them, the returning of the spirit of life into them is not to be meant of the resurrection of their bodies, but the resurrection of their offices, which political slain is to be not long before the fall of the tenth part of the city, i.e. Rome, that city being the tenth part in greatness now of what it was anciently. Number one, is not our profaneness a just ground of our fear? Is there not more wickedness found amongst us where the glorious gospel is shined than among them that live under the fogs of the Turkish Alcoran? Have not our fruits been grapes of Sodom and clusters of Gomorrah? 
Have not many that have been lifted up to heaven by the presence of the gospel walked as if they had the seal of hell in their foreheads? A fullness of iniquity makes a harvest ripe and fit for the sickle. Joel 3.13 Why may we not fear the clouding of the gospel as well as we have heard of Moses' breaking of the tables of the law when he found a people given to luxury, sensuality, and idolatry? When Eli the priest is remiss and Phinehas' son is profane, when there is little care of the true worship of God and no censors for profaneness of life, is not the fruit of this in Ichabod the departure of the glory from Israel, 1 Samuel 4.21? What can be expected when the punishment of profaneness is neglected and the practice of piety has been discouraged? When the Jewish vineyard brought forth wild grapes, God commanded the clouds to rain no more upon it, Isaiah 5.6. Number two, is not the sliding of the means of grace a just ground of this fear? When Reformation has not answered calls, nor improvement answered mercies conferred, when we have fought against God with his own gifts and contemned that rich mercy, we cannot want without ruin. Does not every man's observation witness that this contempt of the gospel has been a national sin in those frequent and repeated endeavors to suppress the purity of it and tire out the professors of it? And as a great man saith, they had rather part with the gospel than part with a rag. And is it not to be observed that in many of those places where the gospel was powerfully preached in our memories, the very sense of it seems to be worn out? What can be expected when children throw a precious commodity in the dirt, but that the parents should take it away and lay it in another place and lash them too for their vanity? God will not obtrude the gospel long against men's wills. When the Gadarenes desired Christ to depart from their coasts, Christ granted their wish and turned his back. When there is no delight in the word, Sabbath, gospel, then cometh a famine of the word, Amos 8, 5. After Christ had pronounced a woe upon Bethsaida, Matthew eleven twenty one, Though he came afterwards to the town and had the opportunity of curing a blind man, he would not do it in the town and commanded him after he was restored not to go into the town or tell it to any inhabitants of it. Mark eight twenty two and 26. He would spill no water upon that ground he had cursed. We shall know God if we follow on to know the Lord. If we then neglect the knowledge of God, which is the end of the gospel, to what purpose should means of knowledge continue among us? God will not allow the waters of life to run there, where he sees they will altogether run waste. The gospel has too much worth, and the honor of God is too much interested in it, to leave it exposed to the injuries of men without revenging it. Number three. And what shall I say of the barrenness of the church's womb? How few real converts are there brought forth of the church's womb and nursed upon the church's knees? God seems to have written barrenness upon her womb and dryness upon her breasts. Does not ignorance sway where before the gospel triumphed? When the ground yields but a faint increase and answers not the cost and labor of the husbandman, he lays it fallow. The abatement of the powerful workings of the Spirit is a presage of a removal or dimming the light in the candlestick. When God withdraws gifts from his ministers and the Spirit from the hearers, it is a sign he will take away that lamp into which he will pour no more oil. 
May we not add to this the apostasy of the age? Where is the old primitive spirit, I had almost said Puritan spirit, that sincere love to all the truths of the gospel, that esteemed value of all its ordinances? What generous designs are taken up to glorify and propagate it? Here is pride and worldliness, like Pharaoh's lean kine, devouring the fat ones of spiritual duties. How seldom have we a sense of God, an estimation of Christ, when we speak of him. Number four. And may not the errors in the nation step in as the occasion of our fears? Not little petty errors, but errors about the foundation, when the doctrine of justification is not only denied, but scoffed at. A doctrine which, as it was owned or opposed, was deservedly accounted in the first times of the Reformation. Number five, what should I speak of the divisions amongst us? These preceded the ruin of the Jews and made way for the fall of the seven churches in Asia. Number six, may we not consider also the death of the ablest pastors as a sad prognostic. Sometimes, indeed, the removal of a signal instrument portends the nearness of some great appearance of God. When the people were upon the skirts of Canaan, first Aaron and then Moses are snatched away. But there were others to succeed in their room. A zealous Phinehas was left behind Aaron, and a courageous Joshua succeeded Moses. Many good men may do things offensive to God and the work of their generation, for which cause God will not let them live to see the blessings he is bringing upon a people. But alas, it is often a sign of an approaching judgment. When the Lord gives out his word, great is the company of them that publish it. Psalm 68 verse 11. When the Lord will remove his words, small is the company of them that will publish it, till at last not one laborer may be left, because God will not have a harvest to gather in, but leave the place as a wild field to ravenous beasts in the fowls of the air. Methuselah is taken away just before the deluge, and Ambrose his head was scarce cold in his grave before the Goths invaded and wasted Italy. It was observed by the Jews that while they were in God's favor, before the son of one righteous man set, the son of another righteous man did arise. Before Moses' son set, Joshua's son arose. Before Eli's son set, Samuel's son arose. And this, they say, is the meaning of that place in 1 Samuel 3, 9, that before the lamp of God went out, the spirit of prophecy came upon Samuel. Is it thus with us? Does a new spring equal the old stock that are gone? How few do possess a prophet's spirit among them that wear a prophet's garment. We may well therefore fear an eclipse of the gospel, and many eyes may not see the emerging of it out of that eclipse. It is worth our consideration that when the spies that were sent to Canaan returned and gave a good report of the land, the common multitude would not believe them. They would return back to Egypt. And though they had been lashed for their murmuring, yet after this provocation, and the sliding the good land, and the perfection of the deliverance. In the possession of Canaan, God swore the destruction of that generation. Numbers fourteen twenty one to 23 Though because of the word passed, he did not deprive their posterity of the enjoyment of the promised land. And God never left till he had swept away that generation before the people came to Canaan. Application number two, if the removal of the gospel be so great a judgment, we have reason to bless God for its continuance so long among us. What a grace is it that God has drawn us out of the depths of error and folly in which other nations have been plunged so long a time. How mercifully has God indulged us that which thousands of heathens have wanted and do to this day. 
Many in the world never enjoyed it, and many that have had it have now lost it. We have been like Gideon's fleece, wet, while most of the world has been dry. He has nourished us with heavenly manna, making it to fall every day at our gates, without putting us to much labor to gather it. That ever God should vouchsafe a light to direct us, who are descended from a race of first pagan and then popish idolaters, plunged in superstition. How criminal will our ingratitude be if we have not lively resentments of his immense goodness. God has yet reigned upon us and not upon many of our neighbors, who are under the thickness of popish fogs. We are yet in the way where his blessings be, where his heavenly manna often falls. How deplorable would our case have been if we had been starved for want of food? Had the sun been extinguished and the stars put out and our residence had been in a gloomy and dolesome world? Ignorance might have bemisted our minds and an implicit face we know not in what have hoodwinked us to damnation. Our Bibles might have been as sealed books and a crime as bad as atheism so much as to peep into the word of God. Traditions might have been mingled with the oracles of God in which the wisdom of God would have been blemished. The merits of Christ might have been mated with the merits of men in which the grace of God would have been dimmed and worship given to idols and images in which the glory of God would have been rifled. What a ravishing mercy is it that our brains have not been knocked out by St. Peter's successor, that God has hitherto continued our preservation when the seal of the fisher had ratified our destruction. Anti-Christianism leaves men in thick darkness. It is the gospel that dispels our ignorance and disperses the beams of saving knowledge. It is this which rescues from despair by showing you the doctrine of justification which heathens could never attain to, and anti-Christianism would fain expunge out of the world. It is a gospel that acquaints you with the fullness of the satisfaction of Christ, whereas anti-Christianism would fright you with a pretended fire of purgatory to empty your purses and defeat your heirs. The gospel teaches you to worship God only, whereas anti-Christianism would divert your prayers to saints, perhaps to St. Garnet and St. Fox. Saints of a new stamp and saints of so bad a hue that a sober man would never admit to be his servants. It is a gospel that fills you with peace, that settles you upon the basis of an infinite satisfaction of the Redeemer, that elevates you in a sincere belief, not only above the fears of a pretended purgatory, but of a real hell. It is a gospel that puts you upon a real sanctification, a mortification of lust by the power of Christ's death and a grace of his spirit not by bodily torture, in which his soul may be rendered unfit for his proper function and worship. It is a gospel that directs us in an inward holiness of heart and frees us from being painted tombs and guided sepulchres. How much ought we to bless God for the continuance of this gospel among us? Number three, it should teach us to improve the gospel while we enjoy it. The time of the gospel revelation is a time of working. Good entertainment and good improvement invites the gospel to stay. Ill usage drives it out of doors. God has allowed us his gospel and set his candlestick among us, but not left it to our discretion to do with it what we please. He has given it to us, as he did the angel to the Israelites, to comfort and conduct them. Exodus twenty-three, twenty, and 21. But with a caution not to despise and provoke him, because his name was in him. Let us improve the gospel dispensation to the getting a gospel nature. It is not enough to be within the visible ark. So was accursed Ham. 
Let us not receive the grace of God in vain, but adorn the gospel by a gospel spirit and a gospel practice, and walk as children of light. Let us not trample it under our feet, but put our souls under the efficacy of it, and get from it the foretaste of a heavenly and everlasting life. Let us not loiter while the sun shines, lest we be benighted, bewildered, and misled into quagmires and puddles. We cannot command a sun to stand still and attend our pleasure. It will go its course according to the word of its governor, and listen not to the follies of men, nor stay for their loiterings. Let not an anti-Christian principle reign in your hearts. Implicit faith is against the improvement of the gospel. There is as much of it in practice in England as there is of principle in Rome. How many believe as their church or churchmen believe without being able to render a reason why they do so? The gospel was given for every man to study and embrace, to embrace knowingly, not blindly. If we do not increase the knowledge and grace by it, we anticipate the judgment of God. We remove that from us voluntarily which God accounts a removal of judicially to be the most deplorable misery. If we do not improve and hold fast what we have received and heard, the coming of Christ in a way of revenge will be sudden, like a thief in the night, and we shall not know what hour he will come upon us till we feel the stroke. I don't mean by death, but some scourge, sore scourge, for so he speaks to the church of Sardis, the state in which the church is at this day, Revelation 3.3. 3. Number four, let us prevent by repentance and prayer the removal or eclipse of the gospel. The loss of your estates, the massacring of your children, the chains of captivity are a thousand times more desirable than this deplorable calamity. Estates may be recovered, new children raised, fetters may be knocked off, new houses may be reared upon the ashes of the consumed ones. The possession of a country regained, but it is seldom the gospel returns when carried away upon the wings of the wind. God indeed is interested in the preservation of religion in a church but not in this or that particular church, not among this or that particular people. Rather than want one, he will raise up stones to be children to Abraham. As he will not have his blessings abused, so he will not have his gospel extinguished in all parts of the world, or all parts of this western world. But does this secure us from any great eclipse? What if God will not remove his gospel? May he not allow many to be infected with popery? May not many of your friends' children be tainted with this leprosy that may prove incurable in them? What if there be a likelihood that it will not long endure? If it shall enter upon the stage, must we not therefore endeavor to prevent it? Prophecy is a rule of our foresight. Precept is a rule of our duty. What if God will not remove the gospel? May he not bring a sharp persecution? Is not the enemy at our door, the rod shaken over our heads? Have we not gathered the twigs of it ourselves and formed a scourge for our own backs? Did we not first let in the serpent's head, and what should we expect but that he will get in his whole body? What can we expect but that God should begin his judgments at his own house and scrape the sides of his sanctuary that have been defiled with so much filthiness? Let us therefore meet God in an humble reforming posture and lay hold on his strength. Consider where we left him and do our first work whence we are fallen, and fallen by our own fault and peevishness, fallen from a zeal of God and national endeavor for the propagation of the gospel. 
Let us desire him as the disciples that were going to Emmaus did Christ. Luke twenty four twenty nine. Lord, abide with us, for the evening begins to come and the day is far spent. Our Savior did so and gave them his blessing before he vanished again out of their sight. God may deal so with us and leave some notable blessing with us till he come again to pitch his sanctuary in the midst of us forevermore. As a promise is, Ezekiel thirty-seven twenty-eight. Let us therefore seek to him, chiefly to him, only to him. He only can remove the candlestick. He only can put his hand as a bar upon the light. Men may be instrumental, but it is Christ only that removes the candlestick, and he only can maintain it against the puffs of men and devils. He has the enemy in a chain and the full command of their breath. Place no confidence in men. Some may have some power to give relief and will not. Others may have will to help and cannot. If we maintain our feud with God, he will bid the gospel go, and it shall go. If we make our peace with him, he will bid the gospel stay, and it shall stay. As he has angels to bring, so he has angels to carry away the everlasting gospel. Remember the threatening in the text is not absolute. There is an else and an except to mitigate it. Remember from whence thou art fallen and repent. And do thy first works, or else I will come unto thee quickly and remove thy candlestick out of his place, except thou repent. A sermon by Stephen Charnock on Revelation 2, verse 5, in his Collected Works, Volume 5.